Thank you, Pat. There is, for the record, there is no recovery once you become addicted to pyromaniacs. I, uh, also, this is like the fourth major winter storm I've run into in my travels this year. And in fact, it's become such a common thing that people blame me for the bad weather. <laughs> and so if you want to do that, okay. Now, this morning I want to look at one of my favorite texts. This is a verse that contains a precious promise that has brought encouragement and strength to millions of God's children in the midst of their trials. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Many of you, I think, are, will have this memorized. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not permit you to be tempted above what you are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. Every one of us faces temptation. This is, that's one of the main points of this verse. Temptation is common to man. And temptation sometimes seems to come in waves. And we might be inclined to think it's going to overwhelm us, but the verse says the true child of God, the person who trusts Christ, does not need to fear that temptation might ultimately and finally engulf us and overwhelm us. That's not going to happen for Christ's true sheep. There are limits to our temptation. In the words of Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, like a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are just dust. And he promises a way of escape from every trial and every temptation that assaults us. And so this is an important text and it's a reassuring guarantee, and it's a promise from which you and I ought to draw strength whenever we are put through trials or temptations. This is a wonderful verse to memorize, and I hope you have memorized it, because you need to be able to remind yourself of this promise every time temptations or trials of any kind threaten you. So let's look at the context and you can see exactly what Paul is saying. If we had more time this morning, I would, I would show you how this text fits in the large context of 1 Corinthians, the epistle. We can't do that, so let's just quickly survey those 13 verses that culminate in our text, starting at the beginning of the chapter. Paul is taking the Corinthians back to the Old Testament, uh, the account of what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness in particular, and he says that what happened to them and the Old Testament record of it is given to us as a negative example, verse 6. Now, these things were our examples to the extent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted, in verse 11. Now, all these things happen to them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So Paul gives here a brief history of Israel in the wilderness, and he starts in verses 1 through 4 by reminding them of the great spiritual benefits every Israelite enjoyed. Let me read those verses, starting at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual food, and did all eat drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, he names five important blessings that every Israelite in the wilderness partook of. They were under the cloud, number one, that's a reference 
to the Shekinah glory. That's the pillar of cloud that guided them by day and the pillar of fire that guided them by night. They had this miraculous physical manifestation of God's glory, which all of them saw, and it led them on their journey. Number two, they passed through the sea, of course, meaning the Red Sea, which God parted and delivered them miraculously at the very point when it would have appeared to human eyes that they had no possible hope of escape or delivery from a powerful enemy, the armies of Egypt. And then number three, verse two, they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, meaning that they were all identified with Moses, united together under God's supernatural protection and guidance so that they shared in the status of a favored nation, God's chosen people. And verse four, or verse three, rather, number four, they did all eat the same spiritual food. That's a reference, of course, to the manna, which God miraculously provided every morning like dew on the ground. It was a spiritual food in the sense that it came to them miraculously and directly from the hand of God. It was a perfect meal with perfect nutrition so that all of their physical needs were met. And then number five, verse four, and they did all drink the same spiritual drink. That is a reference, I think, primarily to the water from the rock. And Paul adds that that rock was symbolic of Christ who followed them for 40 years in the wilderness. And he would graciously quench their thirst so that the water from the rock was a visible token that symbolized the water of life and the unfailing grace of God towards that nation. Five great benefits. Now, you would think that a nation, a people who had so many visible and tangible tokens of God's goodness would be faithful to the God who was so faithful to them, but not so. Verse 5, with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And in fact, that's a, that's a real understatement. It almost makes you smile. With many of them, God was not well pleased. As a matter of fact, all of them died except two. Jo Caleb and Joshua, all of them died in the wilderness before they ever reached the promised land. And the stubborn unbelief of that generation of Israelites was a shocking lesson. And Paul tells the Corinthians that it's recorded for our benefit and our encouragement as a reminder that you and I should be on guard lest we fall into the same sins that overthrew the Israelites. And what were those sins? Again, he names five. Verses 1 through 4, he names five benefits they all enjoyed, and now he names five sins that became stumbling blocks to them. Verse 6, now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, neither be idolaters as some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Neither murmur, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. So, notice, here are the five sins he names. Desire for evil things, verse 6. Idolatry, verse 7. Fornication, verse 8. And putting God to the test, verse 9. And then number five, complaining, verse 10. Five sins. By the way, those were all sins that were rampant 
in the Corinthian church, those very sins. Evil, selfish, fleshly lusts had led to division in that church so that in chapter 3, Paul calls the Corinthians carnal, fleshly. Their carnal lusts had led to envying and strife. And Paul writes, verses three, uh, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, You are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? For while one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? He says it repeatedly to them. You're carnal, aren't you? And then here in chapter 10, verse 14, he mentions the sin of idolatry. Idolatry, of course, was a huge problem in Corinth in that culture because it was such a pagan culture. And we also know that this church had tolerated fornication in their very midst because Paul rebuked them for that in chapter 5. They were putting God to the test through their abuse of spiritual gifts and their wicked behavior at the Lord's table. And Paul even tells them in chapter 11, verse 30, because of this, many of you are weak and sickly and some of you are dying. And they were notorious complainers. Chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says that some of them were puffed up and critical against him because they, they kept complaining that he wouldn't come back and see them in person as if Paul didn't have important things to do. And they just made that a point to complain against him. And we learned in 2 Corinthians that some of them were murmuring against Paul in exactly the same way the Old Testament Israelites had murmured against Moses. And so those five sins were all very real threats in the Corinthian church. And that's why Paul brings them up and names those five. That is also why he's so adamant in urging the Corinthians to heed the message of God's judgment against Israel in the wilderness. Because the Corinthians were repeating the very same sins and errors and following after the very same lusts that had overthrown the Israelites. But they had this false sense of security in spite of their sin. Remember what Paul said about the fornicator in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2? He writes to them and says, but you're you're puffed up instead of mourning. They'd become arrogant. He tells them, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your glorying is not good. And here in chapter 10, verse 12, he adds a similar kind of admonition. Wherefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So he's rebuking their overconfidence. This church, the whole church, the culture of that church had become cocky and arrogant. And so he reminds them basically of the truth of Proverbs sixteen eighteen: Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Because conceit and vainglory and overconfidence have been the occasion of sin for some of the best of saints. It's a serious problem. You remember the boasting of Peter who argued with Jesus about his own frailty in Matthew 26, verse 35, Peter says, even if, I, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. He was confident. And you remember what happened before the rooster crowed the very next morning. And so Paul is pointing out the dangers of that kind of overconfidence, and he posts this huge warning flag against it. Don't be so confident, he says. But then he turns to the opposite danger. And that's where our verse comes in, because for every believer who is arrogant and overconfident, there are many more who are fearful and faint-hearted. 
And Paul is conscious of those weak souls who might be tempted to despair by him placing so much emphasis on the dangers of falling. He's been talking about the history of the Israelites, and all but two of them perished in the wilderness, were kept out of the promised land, the earthly promised land, because of their unbelief. And now he draws another lesson from that history. But this one is an encouragement to souls who are troubled by temptation. And he assures them that there has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not permit you to be tempted beyond what you're able to endure, but God will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape that you might be able to bear it. I'm thankful for that verse. And especially in this context, it's a perfect anchor for any time of trial, but especially when we feel weak in the face of temptation. Because it's a guarantee that there are limits to how much we can be tempted. And God himself exercises sovereign control over every temptation and every trial that assaults us. By the way, this word, the Greek word that is translated temptation here, the Greek word is parasmas, which speaks of a test or a trial or a provocation. And we have a bit of trouble translating this into English because in English we have one expression, trials, that speaks of hardships and troubles and tribulations, things that test our faith. And we have another expression in English, temptations, that we generally reserve to speak of those solicitations to evil that Satan throws at us, that our own flesh causes us to stumble with, temptations. When the devil tries to entice us or incite us to do something wrong, that is a temptation. When God puts trying circumstances in our lives to test and ultimately strengthen our faith, we refer to that as a trial. But there is no such distinction in the Greek. The same word, pyrasmos, is used for temptings and for trials. In fact, it used to be the case that the English word temptation worked exactly like that, and that's why in the King James Version... James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And then he goes on to talk about trials of our faith. And in fact, as always, the context determines the meaning. And the next verse goes on to say, The trying of your faith works patience. And so we know that in that context, James is talking about trials, that even trials God sends our way not solicitations to evil, not what we would call temptation. And as a matter of fact, a few verses later, James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. And there, he's clearly speaking about the solicitation to evil, and the next phrase makes that very clear when he says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt any man. But every man is tempted, that is, drawn to evil, when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed. And the interesting thing is it's all the same word in the Greek. So in, in the, at the beginning of James's epistle, he says, count it all joys, all joy when you fall into temptations. And then later in that same chapter, he says, when you are tempted, don't say God did it because God won't tempt you with evil. But the context makes clear he's talking about two different things. God will try our faith. He won't tempt us with evil. 
And so it's a, it's a useful distinction that we've made in English between trials and temptations because it reminds us of what James 1.13 teaches, that God is never the author or the agent or the efficient cause of evil. He doesn't entice us with evil, even though he does sometimes subject us to trials and put us to the, t- to the test, as we see in Psalm 66, verse 10, for you, O God, have tested us, you have refined us the way silver is refined. But there's, there isn't that distinction between trials and temptations in the Greek. It's the same word either way. It's the word that's found in our text, pyrasmos, and the context has to determine which one it is, which raises a fair question. What is 1 Corinthians 10.13 talking about? Is it trials or is it temptations? It seems to me that the immediate context here deals primarily with temptations, the seductive power of evil, because that's what verses 6 through 10 were all about. But I think it's also quite clear that the principle of this text would apply to trials as well. Whether you're being tempted by evil or subjected to something that tries your faith, God will not permit you to be subjected to a test that is too great for you to withstand. That's an amazing promise, isn't it? And if you think about it, every temptation is also a trial because with every trial comes a temptation. Because if your faith is tested and you fail, that's sin. And so this text teaches us not to tremble in the face of either trial or temptation, but to persevere boldly in faith And it gives us this reason, because God is sovereign. That's the reason. He's not the tempter, but he is sovereign over the temptation, and he guarantees that there are strict limitations on all our trials and temptations so that no trial and no temptation that ever comes to us will be more than we are able to bear. If we fail, it's our own fault. As James says in James 1.14, every man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed. But we aren't left helpless in the face of temptation, and we're never subjected to trials that are too heavy for us to withstand. That is the promise of this verse. And I see within it three distinct aspects to this promise that ought to encourage us as we face the trials and temptations that come our way. And I want to give you these one at a time. You can take them down as we kind of move from point to point in this text. Here's number one. Number one, your trials are no worse than other people's. Your trials are no worse than other people's. The New International Version, at least the version they were selling before they made all the genders politically correct, says this, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. That's a good translation of the Greek text. Paul is speaking, he actually uses a a verb that speaks of temptation seizing us. He uses a Greek word that speaks of grabbing hold of something, perhaps by stealth or by surprise. And the idea is that this temptation catches us unawares. It grabs us. It seems to hold us fast in its grip. And that is exactly what temptation usually feels like, isn't it? Sometimes it just creeps up on you when you least expect it, and then before you know it, it's as if you're caught in the grip. Satan himself is called the tempter 
in Matthew 4, verse 3, and also in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5. So it is no wonder that temptation sometimes feels like it comes to us with demonic power. But, Paul says here, lest you imagine that there's something unique or unusual about the powerful way temptation seizes you, Paul says that's not the way it is. Every temptation you struggle with is a temptation that is common to man. The temptations you face are the very same kinds of temptations that assault every one of us. Now, you may face some abominable temptations. I don't know the specifics of what tempts you, and I don't particularly want to know. You may at times be assaulted with lusts that are so horrific and so heinous that you would never dare even to admit to anyone that you struggle with things like that. Or your mind might be assaulted with blasphemous thoughts, such blasphemy that you, you think your case is unique. Is the, is the devil actually injecting thoughts into my mind? Maybe you even question whether you're a true Christian. And you may think you are being subjected to evil powers that no other Christian besides you has ever had to grapple with, but Paul says that's not so. Those temptations are common to all of us, and they are typical human temptations, not superhuman ones. And although Satan himself might tempt you, don't imagine that he uses temptations suited for demons or the same kind of temptation he used to draw the third of the angels, a third of the angels into hell. Satan is limited in his devices. And 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, we're not ignorant of his devices. His repertoire in the human realm is limited to human temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, according to 1 John 2.16, which means you're not a special case. There has no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. And which also means that every temptation you face is a temptation other godly people have already faced and won victory over. So your case is not hopeless, no matter how powerful or how unique you think your temptations are. And what's more, you can learn and benefit from even the failures of others. That's one of Paul's main points right here in 1 Corinthians 10. Scripture records that horrible history of Old Testament Israel in the wilderness for our good, he says, and for our encouragement so that we can be strengthened and emboldened against the kinds of lust that cause them to stumble because those are, after all, the very same temptations all of us face all the time. And more than that, because those temptations are common to man, we can draw strength from the knowledge that we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but he was, Christ was, tempted in all points, just like we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. Christ himself faced all those same temptations and never once yielded to them. No temptation has taken you, but such as Christ has already endured and overcome. Hebrews 5, verse 2 says, He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, because he himself is also subject to weakness. Hebrews 2.18, For in that he himself suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. Now understand what I'm saying. 
Christ is the perfect man. And evil never had any attraction for him. And yet, in his human weakness, he knew thirst and fatigue and pain and sorrow more than you and I will ever endure. And Satan tempted him on that basis, in his weakness, appealing to those desires and those non-sinful human frailties with the very same temptations that Satan hits us with. You remember that the evil tempter personally, this was Satan in himself, his own person came directly to Christ and tempted him, for example, to eat when he was hungry. He tormented him with grief and with dread in the garden until Christ's sweat was like great drops of blood. And Jesus endured all that temptation, far more temptation than you will ever know. And he never once gave in. He endured every temptation that is common to man. You read the account of his temptation in Matthew 4, and you will see that Satan expressly tempted him with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Every temptation that is common to man. And Christ bore all of that temptation, which came to him, I'm certain, with a force, a devilish force, that no human mind can even fathom. And Christ endured that without yielding an inch of ground to evil, even though in the end it meant a cruel death on a Roman cross. And he did that on our behalf so that he could be our faithful and sympathetic high priest and come to our aid when we are tempted. So this is encouraging, isn't it? Your temptation is no worse than other people's and certainly not in the same league with what Christ already endured on our behalf. You can draw strength and comfort from that knowledge. And instead of seeing how monstrous and persistent your temptations are, learn to look to your faithful and sympathetic high priest who is able to come to your aid when you are tempted, Hebrews says. Here's the second promise you can cling to when trials and temptations assault you. The first one is that your trials are no worse than other people's. The second one is this. Your trials are no worse than you can bear. Your trials are no worse than you can bear. Look at the second phrase in the verse. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. That's, a, that's an amazing and explicit promise. There's no wiggle room there. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. He knows precisely how much you can bear, and he will not permit any trial or any temptation that is too great for you. At the beginning, I read Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. Listen to it one more time. Just like a father pities his children, the Lord pities those who fear him, because he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. God knows how weak we are, and he takes that into account in his sovereignty over the temptations that he allows to assault us. Paul's argument here in 1 Corinthians is based on the faithfulness of a God who is by nature good and compassionate and full of loving kindness and whose mercies are over all his works. And he carefully circumscribes the limits of all of our trials and all of our temptations, and he promises that no temptation can ever come to us that is too great for us to bear. And even though all of us from time to time have been beset with trials that we thought would overwhelm us, James 4 verse 6 says, 
He gives more grace. He gives grace along with the trials. No child of God ever faces a trial without receiving sustaining grace along with it, which is exactly what our verse says, right? He will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. There's a great phrase in Deuteronomy that is familiar to you because it's in one of our one of the classic hymns of Christianity, one of our great gospel songs, Deuteronomy 33, verse 25, which says, As your days, so shall your strength be. Have you ever thought about that? What that's saying is, your trial will not last one more day than the strength God gives you to endure it. Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23 makes a similar promise, which we often sing about as well. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Again, the stress, notice, is on the faithfulness of a compassionate God. Spurgeon said this, How greatly this ought to comfort you who are sorely tried. Every twig of the rod of correction has been made by God, and every stroke of it is counted by Him. There is not one drop more gall in your cup than the Lord has ordained. God has weighed in the scales of the sanctuary every ingredient of your medicine and mixed it with his infallible skill so that it may produce the cure of all your ills. Shouldn't this make us rejoice in the Lord, even in the night seasons? Now, I want you to notice something about this promise, that there will always be a way of escape. It's not a way of escape from our trials. It's a way of escape through them. And the difference is significant. This is not the kind of escape we usually hope for, a way to escape the trial itself. But it's actually a better kind of escape, a way of escape that enables us to bear it. The way of escape comes with the trial, not instead of it. Go back to the example Paul gives in verse 1, and you'll get this. Remember, the Israelites passed through the sea. The Red Sea was a formidable Obstacle. Pharaoh's armies were in hot pursuit. Pharaoh was determined to exterminate the Israelites rather than see them leave Egypt, and the sea blocked their way as they tried to escape. Now, to the human vision, in human sight, their case looked hopeless. And you may remember that story. It's one of my favorite moments in all of Scripture. Moses stops there for a while. He was so confident that God would deliver the Israelites. Exodus 14, verse 13 says, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. He was expecting a different kind of deliverance than the Lord had planned. And so Exodus 14, 15 says, The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Why are you crying to me? Speak to the children of Israel and tell them to go forward. See, the way of escape was through the obstacle. And the Lord used the sea itself. The Lord took that seemingly impassable obstacle and used that as the means of destruction for Egypt's armies. See, the best way of escape is one that vanquishes the enemy, right? And that is why God's way of escape usually goes straight ahead through the trial into the fiery furnace, into the lion's den, into the wilderness... And not only does God take us 
into the wilderness, he leads us through it as well. So the way of escape is not a way to avoid the trial, but a way to bear it. That's the promise this verse makes. Look at the verse again. Here's how the New King James Version has it. With the temptation, he will also make the way of escape. The way of escape. That definite article is a correct translation of the Greek. The way of escape. There's only one right way of escape, and that is the way God designs. If you seek your own way of escape from trials, you will only get yourself into worse trouble. God makes the way of escape. Don't try to make your own. Now, there's a third promise that's implied here, and I don't want you to miss this one. If you're taking notes, this is the third point you need to get. First, your trials are no worse than other people's. Second, your trials are no worse than you can bear. Third, your trials are no worse than God himself permits. Your trials are no worse than God himself permits. Notice, this passage is all about the sovereignty of God. And the whole point is to remind us that God is sovereign even in our trials and even in our temptations. Because if you don't believe that, you can't trust him in the midst of your trials. If you imagine that things can happen outside God's control or that it's possible for people or demons or anything to thwart the will of God and the plan of God by the power of even our own free will, then this passage loses its power. And this is Paul's main point. God is absolutely sovereign, and he's working to accomplish his will, even in those times when it seems like we're being confronted with trials and temptations that have somehow escaped his sovereign eye. That's never the case. I already referred to James 1.13, which says that God is never the tempter or the agent of any evil. Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted with evil, and he doesn't tempt us. And yet, James even is not denying the sovereignty of God over the things those evil agents do to tempt us. God strictly sets the limits of their activity. You see that in the case of Job where the devil, you remember, couldn't touch one hair on Job's head without the express permission of God. You see it also in the case of Peter. You remember what Jesus told Peter in Luke 22, verse 31? Satan wants to have you so that he can sift you like wheat. That Satan had to ask permission to tempt Peter. And Christ personally interceded for Peter to assure that his faith would not fail, but he gave the devil permission to put him to the test. And in the end, that trial strengthened Peter's faith and seasoned him and equipped him to strengthen the brethren. And God used it for good, even though Satan meant it for evil. And that's what God always does, because he is sovereign. And if he didn't permit Satan to tempt us, we would never be tempted at all. But he has a good purpose in all of our trials, even when the powers of evil tempt us to evil. God still exercises his sovereign control, even in those circumstances. Nothing outside what God has planned and ordained can ever come against us. And I don't know about you, but that brings me a great deal of comfort and encouragement because it reassures me that even when evil assaults me, God has not abandoned me. As our text says, 
God is faithful. And in the words of 2 Timothy 2.13, if we believe not yet, He stays faithful. He cannot deny Himself. It also reminds me that God has a plan that is good. With the temptation, He also makes a way of escape. And His plan for, for me is personal, for my good. No matter how bitter the trial may seem, no matter how fiercely the temptation may come, He works all things, even the bad things that happen to us, for good. That's the familiar promise of Romans 8.28. This text also reassures me that if my trials seem to grow more difficult or if my temptations may become more severe, it's only because God, by His grace, has strengthened me and matured me and He knows what I can endure. And that knowledge strengthens me to face the future without dread. One of the real difficulties and realities of life is that our trials actually seem to increase and grow more difficult as we grow older. I I watched this in my own parents. And my dear mom was taken to heaven just a few weeks ago in January. Uh, My dad is legally blind and mostly deaf, and life has gotten more and more difficult for him. And over the past decade, as I've watched my mom and dad face the problems of old age with grace and without growing bitter, I've seen the promise of this verse lived out in their lives. My dad would be the first to testify that God has never allowed him to face a trial without also giving him the strength to bear it. That was my mom's testimony as well. And so while my dad may seem to be growing physically weaker, he is growing spiritually stronger. He's becoming more reliant on the Lord and therefore more able to bear the trials. That is, after all, the very promise Scripture gives us in Isaiah 46, verse 4. Even to your old age, this is God speaking, even to your old age, I am He, and even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. And so, through the eyes of faith, trials do turn out to be blessings in disguise. That's exactly what James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, isn't it? Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith builds patience, and let patience have its perfect work, that you may be complete and whole, lacking nothing. Well, what about temptation to evil, you might ask? Where's the good in that? Well, temptation itself isn't good, but fighting and overcoming temptation is good. And it's good for you. And remember, the Lord knows how much you can endure. That ought to be an encouragement to resist temptation. Sometimes we give in to temptation because we get weary of the battle. And we imagine that yielding, you know, is the easiest way to get relief. But search your heart and you know yielding to sin, yielding to temptation will never really bring relief. It only fuels the temptation and stokes more evil appetites. And when we yield to temptation, it actually makes the next temptation harder to endure. Which is why the biblical prescription for dealing with temptation is to resist. James 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And 
Put your fleshly desires to death, Romans 8.13. Mortify the deeds of the body. Put them to death, and you shall live. Colossians 3.5. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24. Put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. That is the way of escape through temptation. Can you do it? According to our verse, you can, because God guarantees that no temptation you face will ever be beyond your ability to endure. But with the temptation, he also graciously provides what we need to overcome. And if you're a Christian, you therefore ought to be defiant in the face of every foe, bold in resisting every temptation. Don't give in to the lie of the enemy who tells you, well, you're totally depraved, so failure is inevitable. You don't need to resist. Because on the contrary, Scripture says, every true believer is an overcomer, kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And that knowledge ought to be enough for victory on a day-to-day basis until we see him, and Scripture says we'll be conformed instantly, perfectly to his likeness. What if you have no such hope in Christ? I realize there could be people in our midst who don't know the Lord. You may identify with the church. You may even call yourself a Christian, like those unfaithful Israelites in the wilderness You may be a partaker in all the external blessings of the people of God, but if you don't have Christ as your Lord and Savior, this promise is not for you. Because unless you come to Christ for salvation, the trials and the temptations of life eventually will overwhelm you and will destroy you, and you will die in the wilderness. But there is a promise in Scripture you can cling to, and it's this, Romans 10, verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked man forsake his way and let the unrighteous forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon That's the promise Scripture makes to unbelievers looking for a way of escape from their sin. And if you respond to that, the promise of our text will be yours as well. And in Christ, you will find all the grace and all the power you need to sustain you through any trial and to gain victory over any temptation that might ever assault you. Remember, in the words of 2 Peter 2, verse 9, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. That's the very truth of our text too, right? The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. May we embrace that truth with our hearts and see it come to fruition in our daily experience so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what a rich promise this is. 
And we confess that it is only because of the weakness of our own flesh and the evil of our own lusts that we are drawn away and tempted and fall into sin. Help us, Lord, to look to Christ, to lean on His grace, to draw from His strength, to resist temptation daily, moment by moment, as you conform us to His image. We pray in His name. Amen.